We love what Laurel Mountain is, and we're going to continue to own that. It is not an area where we want to try to grow a hotel and put in a bunch of restaurants and add a lot of other amenities. We want Laurel to be known for what it is and have it be just that. Own the skiing and snowboarding is great terrain and no frills. Welcome to the storm. Your host, Stuart Winchester, headed into Western PA today, into what I think is a very underrated ski region. First, though, to get the most out of this podcast and to get future podcasts the moment they drop, please visit stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article that accompanies this podcast that includes a ton of additional context on this conversation and everything that Brett and I talk about including statistical breakdowns of each ski area, historic trail maps, and much more. The storm, by the way, is not just a wintertime thing. I am breaking down the world of lift-serve skiing with at least 100 articles every single year on stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at stormskijournal. First, quick word from my partner. Today's episode is sponsored by Core. Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season is in full swing, which means more riders and more riders means more lift maintenance issues. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and also includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beeve.com es backslash storm so they know i sent you that's b-e-a-v dot e-s backslash storm episode 116 brett cook vice president and general manager of seven springs hidden valley and laurel mountain pennsylvania anyone who's listened to this podcast from the start knows that i love pa skiing if you want the prototype of the resilient skier and the resilient ski area, Pennsylvania is where you are going to find it. The winters are not great. The snow is not typically great, but the passion for the sport is as strong there as it is anywhere in the country. And those challenging conditions not only produce great skiers, but great ski area operators who persist through cycles of rain and refreeze that would force mountains in other regions to shut their whole operation down. The funny thing about Pennsylvania skiing is that, until recently, the state mostly sat outside of the national scene. As recently as 2018, Pennsylvania skiing had almost no megapass penetration and very little national corporate ownership. Then, that changed suddenly and completely. After successive waves of consolidation, Colorado-based Vail Resorts now owns eight of the state's 22 public ski areas. Of those eight, Seven Springs is the highest profile and the most important and, frankly, probably the best. 
It is both a regional destination for skiers from Washington, D.C. to Cleveland and a feeder ski area into Vales Mountains in the West and New England. It is also a mountain with an incredible history, birthing both lift served Pennsylvania skiing and HKD snow guns. Vale bought Seven Springs and its sister resorts, Hidden Valley and Laurel, in December 2021. Now that the company has had a little time to digest them, I wanted to see where their heads were at with the future of these Western Pennsylvania gems. Let's do it. My guest today is the Vice President and General Manager of Seven Springs, Hidden Valley, and Laurel Mountains in Pennsylvania. Seven Springs is the largest ski area in Pennsylvania, with 285 acres of terrain served by 14 lifts on a 754-foot vertical drop. It is also the oldest ski area in the state and one of the oldest in America, opening in 1932. Hidden Valley is the state's snowiest ski area with 140 inches of average annual snowfall covering the ski area's 32 trails and 470 vertical feet. Laurel Mountain, resurrected in 2016 after a long closure, offers 761 vertical feet and Wildcat, one of the steepest trails in Pennsylvania. Prior to taking the top job at Vail Resort's trio of Western Pennsylvania mountains in 2022, he was general manager at Round Top Mountain. He also spent nearly a decade in various positions at Whitetail and Liberty Mountains. Brett Cook is my guest. Brett, welcome to the storm. So fired up to talk to you today. How are you doing on this Monday afternoon? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. It's really, uh, really great to be here and I'm uh, excited to get to chat with you today. So, so let's start here, Brett. I came out and, and skied with you and the team earlier this month. You're going through a rough period through no fault of your own. Mother Nature just was not cooperating. And the story was pretty much the same throughout the region as I traveled down into Virginia, West Virginia and Maryland from Western Pennsylvania. So how have you recovered from that? And how has your ski season gone in general at the three resorts? Yeah, you know, that weather event or the weather events that we've been going through here have been challenging for sure. But the mountain crews here at all three resorts have really done a fantastic job dealing with the weather challenges. And, you know, outside of two operational shifts, uh, one at Hidden Valley, one at Laurel, uh, we've been able to continue operations throughout the entire season so far. So we've been really lucky. Uh, The teams here, like I said, have been doing a fantastic job keeping us going. Um, We've been really strategic in the snowmaking operation and where we where we focus snowmaking, which has really allowed us to build a strong snow base at all three resorts. Um, you know, our our job here is to be prepared for every possible weather situation. And you know, that said, snowmaking has always been and will continue to be a critical part of the business. And uh, specifically early on in the season. And uh, now we're stretching a little bit here, and we're going to continue to flex that same same business thought. So so checking the snow reports today, and we're recording this on January 30th for folks who may be listening a little bit later on, all three resorts look like they're about 50% open. What is it going to take to push you to to full and, and, and hopefully get you ready for that president's holiday week? Is it, do you just need a cold snap? Do you need some snow? What, what, where do you need help here? I'll take all of the above if we can get it. But uh, unfortunately, I think we have to take matters into our own hands whenever we we, we can. And so we're going to really focus on making snow at every opportunity at all three mountains. And, and that's going to push us through President's Day without much of an issue. 
if we can get a little bit of natural snow and some super cold temperatures, that's just going to be icing on the top of the cake for us. Uh, but we're going to continue to take matters into our own hands here if Mother Nature is not going to cooperate with some natural snow. So I know you have big plans for upgrades and, and snowmaking infrastructure at Alter Resorts, and we'll get into those a little bit later. But I kind of want to step back here, Brett. I, I think that you have a really interesting background as far as the person who's running Vale's main resort in Pennsylvania there in Seven Springs, in that you're a Pennsylvania native and uh, and, and, and you have this unique understanding of Pennsylvania skiing that, that I think is really hard to get if you're not from there. So just take us back here. Where did you grow up and when did you actually start skiing? Yeah, I grew up in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, which is in the south central part of the state, right outside of the capital of Harrisburg. And, you know, I didn't start really skiing until I was out of college. Uh, I did go out and ski at Round Top, my home mountain, uh, back in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, once or twice. But it was, uh, that was it. It was, a, it was a treat that really, we didn't get to partake in a ton. I was in sports and it just was not one of the things that we were, we were into at the time. After those one or two times in the 90s, I didn't get back out in the snow again, like I said, until I started at Round Top as a full-time lift operator in 2009. Was that just a job opportunity and, and you were just looking for whatever came along and it happened to be at a ski area or, or did you have a friend who kind of tugged on your sleeve and said, Hey, let's go skiing today. And what, what actually drew you into skiing? Yeah. So, you know, I was going right outside of college job hopped a little bit. My career started in real estate and then that quite didn't work out. The timing was, was rough and I was trying to find something, trying to make ends meet a lot of part-time jobs here and there. And then that winter of 2009, I just decided to go and see what was available at a job fair at Round Top. And thankfully it turned into a, a career now for me, but uh, it didn't take long after one or two days of working as a full-time lift operator to say, I got to figure out how to do this year round because it was really cool. So you're, you're a lift operator and you have loading people all day long. And, and obviously most people are in a pretty good headspace when they're at a ski area. It's, it's sort of a, a happy zone for them. Did you just see everyone skiing around and say, hey, I want in on this? Or what made you actually get out on the hill and, and fall in love with the sport? I really love being able to provide entertainment for other people, whether or not it's on the ski hill or in my personal life out just entertaining with family and friends. I love seeing people have a good time. And that's the main thing that drew me to the sport was being out there, especially at a beginner area. If you can sit there and, and help a family get on the snow, have a little bit of fun, see the smile on the kids' faces, that makes it all worthwhile. And I was hooked right from the start. You know, I always find it interesting and admirable when people start skiing as an adult, because it's not easy, right? When you're a kid, it's a little different. You almost don't even remember learning. You know, my son is six. He's at a, in a seasonal program in Mount Peter, the small place out here in New York. And he's not going to remember learning how to ski. He's just going to be able to do it. But when you're when you're older and, and you're sort of growing into your body, it it's harder. And and just from a coordination point of view, from a confidence point of view, you're a little more aware, I think, of your own personal fragility. So I, I want to hear about how you approach that and then how you approach that as someone who manages a ski resort and, and keeping that in mind that, that people may want to try it, but not be that comfortable. And I think you're in this unique situation in Pennsylvania where you're really close to a lot of population centers. It, it's, it's, a, it's a state where, you know, the winter's long and people are kind of looking for something to do. So, so how did you approach that? And then, and then how, do you, how does that sort of inform your management style as you look to welcome people in from this big metropolitan Pittsburgh area that's only an hour away, right? 
um, and, and who may want to try it, but not, not feel like, like maybe it's something that, that they can do as a, as a grown up. Yeah. You speak a little bit to how we approach things as adults, as opposed to kids, you know, I'm bringing my kids out and skiing and snowboarding. And we've been out a handful of times this year and they definitely do approach it differently. It's not worrying about having to have the perfect turn or come down in a certain way. It's just about having fun. And I think that's one of the big things that we can do differently within within the industry is focus on just having fun, not the technical side of skiing. Unless that's something you're into, don't focus on it. Just get out and, and have a great time with your family and your friends. And we do have an opportunity here in the Mid-Atlantic being close to those large metropolitan areas. We have an opportunity to welcome so many people into the sport and we need to approach it that way, which I think we do a fantastic job of it here in the Mid-Atlantic. We are a great group of intermediate beginner mountains that introduce a lot of people to the sport and then they go out in their adult lives and partake in the sport elsewhere. Also then staying back at their home resort as well. That's a big piece of it too. We have a lot of people that have skied and and snowboarded at these resorts and have been here all their lives and they love it. That's, that's a huge piece of it. Like I said, we do a really good job of welcoming people into the sport and we need to continue doing more as well. Well, uh, for anyone listening who who may not ski, you can uh, start as an adult and go on to run the biggest ski area in Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, so t- let's talk about that progression, Brett, because I think it's really interesting. And and I have a uh, a big contingent of listeners who work in the industry, and a lot of them want to progress their career and imagine themselves running a mountain one day. So talk about this progression from lift operator through Liberty Roundtop Whitetail, which is a really interesting trio of ski areas in itself um and then on to to lead the trio of resorts that you do today yeah after that first season at Roundtop, like i said i knew the ski industry was for me and i needed to find a way to do it year-round that following season i was hired on to manage the lift operations department at liberty mountain resort and stayed in that position for about four years over the summer during that time i would help mow the grass and the slopes or assist in lift maintenance snowmaking teams with some of their summer projects the following three seasons from that, I gained more experience in food and beverage and conference services, which ultimately helped to lead into a assistant manager, assistant general manager position at Whitetail. The GM at the time was helping lead the resorts through a liquor referendum to gain their liquor license. So they ended up bringing me into that role, which really helped me. It gave me an opportunity to gain a ton of experience in retail and rental tubing, guest services, ski and ride school operations. It really rounded out my knowledge from mountain operations to skier services. And then at that point, I was in the assistant manager, assistant general manager position for two seasons when Don McCaskill, who was a general general manager at the time, he retired that summer of 2019. And I was promoted to be a successor as GM. Then in December of 2019, had the opportunity to return to my hometown mountain and became the GM at Roundtop. So those three mountains, Roundtop, Liberty, and Whitetail, when you started, they were owned by an operation called Snowtime. And it's funny because within Vail, as far as I can tell, you still refer to them as the Snowtime Resorts. And that's that's how skiers still refer to them as well on, on social media and, and when they write to me. 
just talk about snow time, what it was like to work for that company and, and kind of what their focus was as, as these resorts that kind of serve these, these urban areas, but they're, they're out in the wilds of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Working for snow time was great. Yeah. You know, it's where I first got my start in the, in the ski industry and will continue to, for, to be forever grateful for the opportunities that was afforded by the company. It was a small, small town company and Definitely had the opportunity, like I said, to grow my career within multiple departments at three different mountain resorts, which is not always possible. And I, I again, I can't say enough about the company. And without the support of Snow Time, I wouldn't be sitting here in this role today. So in September 2018, Snow Time announced that they were selling their three resorts to Peak Resorts, which at the time owned Mount Snow and 13 other ski areas across New England, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Missouri. How did you react when you heard that news? Yeah, it was it was unexpected to say the least. Uh, it never crossed my mind at the time that it was going to be a possibility. Anytime there's an acquisition like that, it can be a lot for the team to understand. Uh, and individually, I was still struggling with understanding when all, all the while, um, it took me a couple of days, but trying to understand what's going on, we were on board right away. And I ended up looking at it from the, a different lens of this is going to be a great leadership development opportunity and, and dove right in. Where were you? Um, refresh my memory on the timeline. Were you at, were you assistant GM at Whitetail at the time? Were, were you still at Liberty? Where, where were you at in that progression? Yeah, I was the assistant GM at Whitetail at the time that Snow Time was purchased by the Peak Resorts. So kind of looking back, you know, these, these cultural transitions can be difficult. So you're going from a, a very hyper-local Three Mountain operation to an operation that's headquartered, weirdly, in Missouri at the time and, and sprawls all the way up to Wildcat in New Hampshire and, and all the way out to uh, this ski area outside Kansas City. So what was that transition like? What went well and, and where was it challenging to, to go from small to big? Yeah, it was challenging within that mindset of going from small to big, understanding we we were three resorts at one point and then became a piece of 17 resorts. That's a lot to take in. And I thought it was interesting how the team responded to that. Really quickly, they were able to turn that around. And we looked at it as a huge opportunity to now have so many resources at our fingertips from just having three resorts to 17 sister resorts we were able to have so much more possibility and also have a little bit more of stability to be able to work through whatever weather challenges they there may be within the industry. Uh, we didn't see very many at all, but just to have that on the back burner as a comfort piece was, was really big. So that was your first entree into being part of a big pass, right? Because all, all of those resorts were absorbed into what was called the peak pass, and so all of a sudden your pass holders could go up to Mount Snow. They could go up to New Hampshire if they wanted to. Um, I imagine not a lot of them were vacationing in Ohio. But uh, but but what was, what was that like to kind of be part of something bigger and be part of a network? And just from a marketing and sort of customer relations point of view, like what was it like to bring your skiers into that network? And, and, and did they did they like that? Yeah, it was an, it was a challenge for guests as well. If you're used to three resorts and one price for a pass, and then it, it changes, uh, that's that can be difficult to work through as well. However, they were on board as well for the most part. You know, we had some one-offs here or there where people weren't understanding and wanted 
everything to stay the same. And there's, there's something that you can respect that, but I think it was an opportunity and everybody saw it as an opportunity. Now at that point, instead of buying one season pass and going to three resorts, you can go up and down the East coast and visit some premier large premier resorts that were great people that were, they were already going to visit those resorts and, but having to buy a separate pass or a separate day ticket at that point, it was one pass and 16 more resorts you can go visit. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's funny. There's benefits and then there's, there's always going to be some little things that people latch onto. I, I still hear about with surprising frequency, there was some kind of like night punch card thing or something at round top and, and he didn't keep that. And people are still so mad about this. So, so how do you, how do you look at that challenge when, when you have skiers who are used to a, a very particular niche product, you, you can't continue as you grow your portfolio to have all these little things at each little amount and just administratively, it's very hard, but, but how do you manage that with, with the skiers and kind of talking them off the ledge? Yeah, I think it's managed by being transparent and saying, look, this is, this might've been an opportunity before. However, now we are part of a company that has a different business mindset right, wrong, or indifferent, that is the direction that we're heading in. And I think that that's difficult to to work through sometimes. Uh, it was difficult for all of us as well as employees to have to give that message. But at the end of the day, uh, we think it is the best route to go. And it took a little bit of time, but everybody got on board. And you know, I think we're all better off for it. It's different. That doesn't mean it's wrong. And we think we're in a good spot at that time as well. We, we thought we were in a good spot. So not even a year goes by and the whole company sells again, right? Vale comes in and buys it. And um, Vale is just a whole different thing from peak, right? It, at this point, it was already a coast to coast company, had resorts in Australia, obviously respect to Mount Snow. No one's flying around the world to ski at Mount Snow. Like you, you, you're suddenly part of something huge. So so how did you react when you heard, A, that, it, that you were being sold for the second time in, in, in a year, in less than a year, and B, that it was Vail, the biggest company in skiing? Yeah, again, more change management. And if I were to say that change fatigue was not a real thing, I'd be lying. You know, there's a lot of change that the teams went through within two seasons. And we proved ourselves resilient through all that change. There, there's something to be said there. And you know, there, that first season under Vail, there was not really a whole lot that changed. It clo- the sale closed in the fall of 2019, and that was just too late to implement any integration changes. So that first season was pretty much business as usual. There was a lot of excitement about joining Vail Resorts, and the feeling was mutual. Vail welcomed us in with, o- with open arms. Uh, at that point, the pandemic hit, and that added a whole nother element to the transition. We ended up having to close all the resorts at the end of March that year and needed to work through all the integration remotely. Mm-hmm. So everything was done virtually. Uh, that was a little challenging, but the company worked hard to make sure that, that the transition was as seamless as possible. And right now we're in a really, really great place. Uh, the integration has gone really well. And the new employees here that we have, as well as the previous, the past employees, we don't know anything different. We're all one company now. So Vail, when they purchased Peak, and it, it's this is all moved so fast that it's hard to really appreciate this until you step back and look. That was their entrance into Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is such an interesting ski market to me. I, I think that as a generator of new skiers, there's probably no more important state in the country. It probably has peers. But if you look at 
the population of Pennsylvania. I think it's the fifth or sixth largest state in the country. You have two big cities, metro areas in, in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and lots of other little cities in between. So there's lots of people. It's cold. You have lots of skiing, but it's not necessarily other than Seven Springs. We'll talk about like a destination ski region. And you have a lot of challenges. So, so just lay this out for us. Pennsylvania skiing, what is unique about it? And and what is what is special about it as, as a region and, and makes it sort of this distinct thing? Yeah, I think the proximity to the metropolitan areas is really unique. A lot of skiers in the area. You know, 150 million to 175 million uh, people in that region. That's a lot of... Uh, population base that enjoys skiing. And I think if you go out west or up north, you are going to hear or see, meet somebody that's from the area who has visited Ski Roundtop or or Liberty or Jack Frost Big Boulder. It's, we hear those stories day in and day out, which is pretty cool. Um, East Coast skiers definitely have a reputation, I think, for being resilient, really passionate. And we know how to earn our turns in the best and the worst conditions. We're certainly appreciative of the select opportunities we have in, to ski real powder, uh, very select opportunities. But in Pennsylvania, that passion persists with what I really think is grit and determination. They don't call it the ice coast for nothing. It can sometimes be challenging, but we get out there and we ride in all, all weather. We're going to, and you know, I'm a proud Pennsylvania native and really proud of the ski culture that we've been able to grow here. If you think about Vale's portfolio as a whole, and I realize you're just representing three resorts in Western Pennsylvania, but you know what, what is the value to Vale of entering the Pennsylvania market? I mean, how, how does how does because if you're if you're in Colorado and and you're looking east and you see the Vale buys all these Pennsylvania scaries, probably just shrugging your shoulders like who cares? But but from a, a company point of view, like why did this make sense? Because they they not only bought these five with Peak, but then they they doubled down and went in at Seven Springs to we'll talk about it in a minute, but. But just talk about the value of, of Pennsylvania to Vail as a whole. Yeah, Pennsylvania is an incredible destination for outdoor recreation, tourism, and it's easily accessible with those several large metro, metropolitan markets like New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. And for the company adding these locations, these five resorts at the time, that's a no-brainer. Uh, the business model here for the company has been designed as an interconnected uh, network of 37 different resorts now 41 across all of North America. I think for Vail there had to have been a learning curve because when you're accustomed to running Whistler and Park City and Tahoe and places in Eagle and Summit Counties Colorado where it just the snow just comes and you don't really have to make a lot of it that's a lot different from running a ski area in Pennsylvania where we're here at the end of January and you're lucky to have half your terrain open right so what, what was what was that learning curve like and, and how did how did you work with Vale to help them understand what they had and, and how much different it was from what they were used to and, and the difference in approach they had to take? Yeah, I think we've been working really closely together to be able to understand what those different challenges are. There's nothing quite like managing a ski area on the East Coast, uh, whether or not it's in Vermont, Pennsylvania uh, or Missouri. It, we all have the same challenges weather and not necessarily the same challenges that are day in day out in Colorado, mm -hmm. but we work really closely to be able to identify where we have opportunities to flex within those weather challenges. And I think we do a really nice job of counteracting what the weather does throw at us. We continue to 
talk day in and day out about those opportunities and dial in what our strategies are for counteracting those weather challenges. All of, the, all of our resorts have great snowmaking systems, and that's still somewhat new within the, within the company. But we are working through it. We're going to continue to work through it and adjust our, uh, our approach to snowmaking as needed. Do you think that Vail, the corporate folks in Colorado, do they understand the importance of snowmaking? I, I, I ask this because it, it's, it seems as though if you look at some peer resorts in the regions where Vail operates in the east, they're aggressive with snowmaking early and Vail seems to be a little more conservative. Now that's my perception from the peanut gallery, you know, from, from the inside, are they getting, you need to make snow early often as much as you can. And it's, it's just going to be a different budget line item than it is in, you know, Beaver Creek. Yeah. I think the company does understand the importance of snowmaking for sure. You know, that out here on the East coast is our lifeblood and without opportunities to make snow, the, the ski and snowboard season would be short. And the company definitely does lean into that as much as possible. Without snowmaking, we're not we're not here. And it, it is one of those things that is determined, contrary to popular belief, those decisions are determined here at the mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, we determine whether it makes sense or not. Some days it does uh, does make sense. I'm sorry, some seasons it does make sense to start early, well in advance of what our targeted opening days are. And some seasons it doesn't. But those are all conversations that we have. And ultimately, the decision really does land right here at the at the mountain within the man, uh, management. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. So if you look at it's not that Vail hasn't had mountains that they rely on for snowmaking. Keystone, for example, is a heavy snowmaking mountain, but their base is at, you know, nine or ten thousand feet or whatever it is. So they make it and it sticks. Right. So how. Talk a little bit about how aggressive you have to be with snowmaking in Pennsylvania. Just, how, you know, I've seen ski areas blowing snow into March in this region from a timeline point of view and, and looking at the season holistically, this whole four month unit, how heavy do you have to hit the snowmaking and how long do you have to hit it? Yeah, it really depends season to season. You know, if we are getting cold temps early in the season, we can hit it hard in November, December, beginning of January, and then tail off to just dust a little bit here and there, replenish the surface to make it a little bit nicer from time to time. And then you have seasons like we've had this year and, and some of the last seasons where weather's been challenging and we need to make snow and push hard every opportunity we can. And we're able to, to do that flexing in the moment whenever that weather does change. Uh, we continue to look at the weather seven days out, 10 days out, and adjust our snowmaking strategy. We have conversations multiple times a week on what that strategy is going to be. And it's changed even today two and three times as we look through mm. the weather. So when you say that all those decisions are made at the, at the mountain level, if you say that you need a little more coverage in early March, for example, can you make that decision? There's no check in Broomfield. Like you can just say, okay, you know, we're for, for reasons X, Y, and Z, we think it makes sense to blow the guns overnight on this day. And, you know, say first weekend in March, that that's something you can do. Yeah. We have the opportunity to stay within our, our lane, if you will, to understand what that time frame is, and we make that determination here. Whenever it falls outside of that core season, there's conversations absolutely that happen with upper management to be able to determine whether or not it makes sense. And we have the support. We have the support from Broomfield to do what is needed here locally for sure. It's funny. I was when I hosted Chris Blomback, the general manager of Pat's Peak up in New Hampshire. That's a uh, an independent ski area, and he intimated that about half of his operating budget 
goes to snowmaking. What, what can you tell us about the cost of snowmaking and, and how much of a focus that has to be in Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's definitely a tremendous cost. I don't have any of those figures in front of me right now, but I can tell you that that's probably fairly accurate. Yeah. So, you know, Pennsylvania, as I said, it's super interesting to me. I, I think the ski areas are probably a little bigger than folks who haven't skied there think. There's a lot of thousand or so foot vertical mountains and they're very busy. And it's interesting because the skier, there tends to be a lot of novice skiers, right? But there's also a lot of very passionate skiers who go outside of the region. Just talk about that Pennsylvania ski culture a little bit, Brad, and um, in the energy there and and the enthusiasm that folks have for skiing in the state, despite having all these challenges that we've talked about. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about skiing here in Pennsylvania is the proximity to so many different mountains. You're within, no matter where you are in the state, you're probably within four hours of every single one. And I believe there's 24 different ski areas in Pennsylvania alone which that's a pretty cool, unique opportunity. And each one has its own feel, its own opportunities. And if no matter what your skiing or snowboarding preference is, you can go find a resort that that fits your needs. That's a pretty cool piece here in Pennsylvania, for sure. And now that we are part of that Epic Pass family, mm -hmm. you can do it all in one pass, even more of an added value now with the eight resorts here within Vail. So yeah, so 24 ski areas in Pennsylvania and Vail owns eight of them. And I, I for one thought that once they purchased Peak, they would probably be done in PA. I was surprised to see that and that they bought Seven Springs, Hidden Valley and Laurel in December, 2021. Why did Vail do this? Why did they add these three resorts when they already had such a large presence in the state? You know, I think it's, it goes back to the, the metropolitan areas and our, our business goal here is to grow the Epic Pass and Epic Pass base as, as much as we can. That's where the value is. And to be able to bring in that, that pass base to the company from Cleveland and Columbus, Pittsburgh, that's a huge opportunity. And then to also add three really unique resorts here to, to the portfolio, it's a win-win. Yeah. Talk about that uniqueness a little more because I, if you look statistically at places like Round Top, Liberty, and Whitetail, and then compare them, just talking size and vertical wise, to Laurel, Hidden Valley, and Seven Springs, you don't see a really stark difference. Obviously, the snowfall total in the western Pennsylvania ski areas is, is a lot more. But but what what is what sets those apart? Because when you get on the ground and ski them, they're very different. Yeah, we'll definitely hang our hats on those snowfall totals for sure. Uh, that's that's something that's fairly unique here, and we'll we'll ride that as long as we can. Uh, but, you know, these three resorts out here, like I said, are really unique and each one does have its own feel. For instance, Seven Springs is often referred to as a cruise ship in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Just about everything you could want and need here for a winter getaway is all in one location. Whether it's a, a lively nightlife at the Foggy Goggle, fine dining at Helen's, uh, expansive slopeside hotel, tons of fun for families with indoor bowling alley, uh, swimming pool, arcade. Uh, roller skating, mini golf, the list goes on. That's all right here. You don't have to leave the resort at all. You park your car, you can stay here for a week and, and get everything you need. Hidden Valley, which is a favorite of my wife and me to be able to spend the day with our three kids. You know, a mellow environment with ideal terrain for beginner and skier snowboarders with of all, all ages to be able to have a nice array of progressive terrain and really allows families and beginners to develop the, develop their skills. And then throwing in a couple of uh, nice black diamond trails as well and some great glades. Then Laurel Mountain, really very much a hidden gem. 
Uh, it's smaller in size, but it's really big in charm and history. It's an upside down mountain with the lodge at the top, really great views of the slopes and of the Laurel Highlands. It is a diehard skier or snowboarders. It, it's their dream area. You know, that is where you can get some diehard skiing and riding. And it's home to Lower Wildcat, which is the steepest uh, terrain here in the state. I was really struck when I traveled out to Western Pennsylvania, Brett, by the just the ruggedness of the terrain. It felt kind of like Appalachia, like the northern end of Appalachia, as opposed to Round Top, Whitetail Liberty. Feel a little more, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, they feel a little more sort of manicured, suburban almost. Like they're, they, they sort of feel like they have that urban area feel. Whereas to travel, to drive between Whitetail and Laurel, as I did the day I met up and skied with you there, is uh is really just striking terrain and country and these winding mountain passes and these soaring views and just not at all what I expected. And I, I've driven across Pennsylvania literally hundreds of times, but mostly on the interstate. So to get off and, and see that was amazing. So just to help set the scene here and 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 because you grew up obviously in you know more south central Pennsylvania and just to talk about western Pennsylvania and that kind of special atmosphere that you have out there in terrain and geology. Yeah, my experience has very much been on the eastern side of the state. You know, I grew up in Harrisburg area, went to school in Kutztown, which is out near Allentown, Philadelphia area, and have not come to this end of the state very often at all throughout my lifetime. When I was afforded the opportunity to come here and manage these mountains, it was my first dive into it. And I'll be honest with you, I had the same exact re- response to it that you did. Yeah. I was blown away by the views the the, spr- the the way the mountains roll when you're in the mountains here you are in the mountains and it does have a really out west a really nice out west feel to it uh, you can't see as as you do from round top if you're in camp hill or harrisburg the highest point in the area is round top and it is a beacon you can see it from miles away here you are surrounded by the mountains and everything is kind of tucked in with itself. So you can't see seven springs from hidden Valley, very little bit of it. You can, uh, or vice versa. We are all within the same mountain range and that's a pretty cool feel. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, um, so I, I think this is not widely appreciated. So you have some elevation out there at all three mountains. And, and as a result, those snowfall totals I mentioned in the intro, I think those probably surprise a lot of people, 150 or so inches a year at Hidden Valley and Seven Springs. And, and those are totals you, you're more likely to see kind of in Southern New England, maybe not, not Southern New England, but Southern Vermont or New Hampshire. And in fact, more than, than some of Vail's New Hampshire resorts see. So just talk about the, the, the unique geology and placement of those three ski areas and, and how that impacts snow and, and why you do get so much snow on average. Obviously this year has, has been rough, but on average then, uh, then, cause there's in the Poconos, I mean, there's years when they get 10 inches of snow. It just that they, they just don't sit in that zone. So so talk about the snowfall totals there and in that special region you sit in. Yeah, so far I haven't had that experience. It's been a little bit different this year, but I'm hoping to have that experience soon. 3,000 feet of vertical here at Seven Springs is pretty unique. And that I believe we are the highest point in, uh, in the state uh, or close to the highest point in the state. Mm-hmm. And with our proximity here to the Great Lakes, if the weather is is coming out of the Great Lakes just right, we can really ride a nice wave of, of, of lake effect snow. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, our snowmaking systems here are able to power through some really cold weather. And we can almost create a little micro climate here for ourselves. And whether or not Mother Nature is cooperating, 
we can, uh, it's a winter wonderland out here. The weather can be a little bit different from mountain to mountain, even being just four miles away, four or five miles away with Hidden Valley, uh, depending on which way the weather, is, weather pattern is pushing, it can ride the ridge and go to one side or the other. Uh, this season, it's actually been hitting Hidden Valley a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And it really just goes from season to season and depends on how that weather pattern is pushing everything. So they're great resorts sitting there kind of in the middle of all these different cities and and yet in this very rugged climate, get good snowfall. Vail buys them. You've developed a home with the so-called Snowtime Resorts. How did the opportunity come up to lead Seven Springs and and why did you take that? Why was that compelling to you? Yeah, when the when the acquisition was first announced, I believe I really had had so much recent experience with change management that I knew that I was able to bring something new to the table and something unique to the table, I believe. Uh, I've kind of given myself a little bit of a nickname of the integration guru because I've been through so many here in the last couple of seasons. I went right to my boss and asked if there was any way that I could be a part of it. And from what I knew of the resorts at the time, they offered a great location, very terrain, expansive history, and you know the presence on the East Coast. Uh, seven years ago, I came out and visited these resorts and was here with a friend. To then be able to have the opportunity now, seven years later, to lead them was pretty cool opportunity. Never would have saw it coming. Bale's been pretty aggressive, from my point of view, of promoting from within. And, and I think your story is indicative of that. And I, and I, I can't give Vail all the credit here of you going from Lifty to, to general manager of three resorts, because it, you, obviously you've gone through a progression of companies. But I guess talk about this from two different angles. One, from a personal point of view, and you, you touched on this earlier when Snowtime joined peak and, and, it, and you viewed it as an expansion opportunity, right? So, so how, how nice is it to work at this really global company where, where you know that there is opportunity always to do something more and, and, and there, and there's always other mountains and, and other jobs you could do. So, so kind of from the personal point of view, and then as someone who I have no idea how many employees you have across the three resorts, I'm, I'm guessing it's over a thousand. And as you think about them and and wanting to develop their careers, how you tell that narrative to them and say, hey, look, yeah, we're we're, a, we're Western Pennsylvania ski areas that have four month seasons, but this is this is a global company that operates year round and operates forty one resorts. So so you can do a lot if you want to and make a career here. Yeah, I don't think my perspective on the the industry and falling in love with it is unique by any means, mm-hmm. and I'm such a great example of being able to see that opportunity. And we do promote from within. That is one of the greatest things about the company here and really proud of the opportunity that I've been afforded both by Snowtime and by Vail Resorts. Um, when you're part of a small company, it, it, it's tough. There's only so many opportunities out there. You know, even with the Snowtime Resorts, three companies, uh, three, three mountains, there's only so many opportunities. And at that point, there were a lot of managers that were in their roles for years and years and years. And I can't tell you how many people probably got out of the industry because not understanding where the next opportunity was going to be for them. When we were purchased by Peak Resorts, those opportunities grew by an exponential amount. And then when we became part of Vail Resorts, it grew even further. Now to be part of a global company that has multiple lines of businesses across the country or across the country and the world, that's a lot of opportunity and there's enough opportunity out there for everybody, uh, especially if you're going to speak up and say, hey, I'm looking for something. We're going to be able to find it for you. They all made an absolutely enormous investment in employees 
that it announced last year and put in place for the ski season. And I know there were a lot of elements to this, but I, I do want to focus on the wage, $20 an hour minimum. I have to imagine that for Western Pennsylvania, that is huge. I don't know what the average wage is out there, but I know it's not $20 an hour. So how has that gone from a morale point of view and just a staffing point of view and getting every all the resources you need to run the resort? How has that resonated? How has that been received? It's been received really well. This is the first season that I could say accurately that we are all but almost 100% staffed across the board. And you don't get that way without having an investment into your employees. The $20 minimum an hour uh, increase was just the tip of the iceberg. There were so many other, other ancillary benefits to becoming part of Vail Resorts from other opportunities for leadership development, other lines of businesses to be able to, to go into, mental health resources, uh, you know, so much out there. The list is really expansive. However, you know, that $20 an hour is a big piece in there for everybody. And that went over really, really well. So when you compare operating these resorts to operating them last year, I, th- I think you started in February last year, correct me if I'm wrong. How much smoother have things gone? Because Vail had some pretty well-documented staffing issues last year. So just talk about this year and 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 how you've been able to improve on last year and maybe how those corporate initiatives helped on the local level. Yeah. You know, for some areas here, we were able to almost triple people's wages right away, right when we came in. We went from, you know, eight or nine dollars an hour for some positions here to 1350 mm-hmm. in April and then 1550 in May, and then ultimately $20 an hour in October, which was a huge bump. If that is a little bit above where everybody else is paying here, we are the premier employer in the area. And, you know, we, we hold that really well and we're, we take pride in that. That helps a lot of problems when you have enough staff to be able to operate the resort fully, that goes a long way. And then, you know, that's one big resource that we have as a company is our staffing and we're able to control that. So I do want to get a little bit more into Vale's long-term plans around the three skiers. But first, let, let's step back and look at the legacy here. And Seven Springs is, is really interesting. It's only had three owners, and it's very, very, as I said, nearly 100-year history. Talk about the the legacy of the owners, the Nutting family that handed right off to Vale Resorts. What is their legacy at these three ski areas as you as you kind of credit them with, okay, nice job, thanks. You know, here, here we're taking into the future and, and this epic past thing we have going. But, but reflecting back on the nuttings, what is their legacy at the three ski areas? Yeah, the, over the 15 years of their ownership, the Nutting family, they really took the team uh, and Seven Springs to the next level. They're a family of avid and passionate skiers who, as I understand it, grew up here skiing at Seven Springs. And they took that love for the resort and made Seven Springs into the year-round destination it is today by creating some new amenities like the Trillium Spa, uh, renovating the hotel and the lodge, uh, expansive special event schedules, and there's so much more. By then adding Hidden Valley and resurrecting Laurel Mountain, they truly strengthened the region here in their skiing and snowboarding history. history. While they may have sold the resorts, they're definitely still here on the mountain with us and uh, as neighbors, and we appreciate having them here. There's such a long history here at Seven Springs, and we're really honored to be a part of it now. What can you tell us about Vale's interest in Seven Springs and when that started? And maybe you weren't privy to these. I realized you, this all happened before you were running the resort, but kind of why they wanted to sell and why Vale was the right buyer. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have much information there. I found out about the sale at the announcement and don't have much to add there before before then. But I can tell you, like I said earlier, um, it was a no-brainer trying to add these resorts. They're great resorts in the area, premier regional destination at Seven Springs, great skiing at Laurel, uh, nice family atmosphere at Hidden Valley. Again, I think it was a no-brainer. All right, let's focus on Seven Springs here first. Obviously, that's that's the alpha dog in this region. That's probably in, in the whole state of Pennsylvania as far as uh, its destination resorts go. As I mentioned, only Vale is only the third owner. And this ski area was founded by the Dupree family, 1924. That's that's hard to wrap our heads around, right? That that, that was almost 100 years ago. And so just talk about the Dupree family. Talk about their legacy. Yeah, they the Dupree family really has a, a stronghold here. They grew this area a ton. To understand the long t- long-term view they had when they first stepped foot here and to see what it is now is nothing short of impressive. Uh, recently, I didn't actually realize how much history there was here until I had been here on mountain. And my first day here uh, at Seven Springs, I spent lunch with Sis Dupre, wife of the late Herman Dupre and, and her daughter, Rosie, and really found out that Seven Springs is hollow ground for the ski industry. This is where the HKD snowmaking system started. Several of the Dupre family still live here on property and call the mountain home. I'm actually looking forward to having some tea and uh, and lunch here with sis coming up again soon. So I, you know, that HKD bit is so interesting. I didn't realize that until I was skiing around out there. Talk about Herman founding HKD snowmaking company. And it's, it's, I, I didn't realize it because it's moved to Quebec for some reason that I don't really understand, but, but it's up there now, but it, it started at seven Springs. Just talk about that legacy and, and how that lives on today at seven Springs. You know, the legacy lives on here at Seven Springs. We've got tons of HKD snow guns all over the mountain, and we're continuing to invest in our snowmaking system, largely here at Seven Springs with HKD. It's pretty amazing to think that that iconic company started and uh, and has its roots here at Seven Springs. While I wasn't fortunate enough to meet Herman before he passed away, the snowmaking system that he built here is expansive. It's resourceful, really intuitive, and ultimately, it's it's just a really ingenious uh, system that he was able to, to, to muster up. Tell us about the ponds. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of ponds around the resort. I believe it's 49. And that is, he had a saying that no water leaves the area here without his permission. And he put a pond, a holding pond, wherever water was sitting. And as it melts off the mountain, that's where he built those ponds. So we were able to then take that shuttle water through the pipeline back up to the top of the mountain and reuse it for snowmaking. So it really is a uh, virtually a closed circuit system that enables us to utilize the water and then recapture it right here on the property. I mean, 49 ponds, that's, that's unbelievable. And it sounds like Mr. Dupree had quite the imagination in mind and, and innovative spirit. Sometimes it's when you're dealing with this sort of inventor genius type, it's kind of hard to, to pass that institutional knowledge along, right? So how well does modern Seven Springs understand this system of 49 interconnected ponds? And how much do you leave scratching your head? Like, how does this connect to this? Or, or do you have like a team that, that has been able to retain that knowledge? I understand about 1% of it. Okay. And I feel like it's a lot, but again, it's only 1% of it. Yeah. We, have ha- we have a snowmaking team here that has been here for, for many years. Uh, Kirk Russell is our snowmaking manager, and he understands this snowmaking system and those ponds better than anybody. And he is 
leading a team that is growing their knowledge of that system as well. And so we are, we always are working through succession plans as a company. Uh, you never know what's going to end up happening. And, you know, Kirk may be the next person to go out and run snowmaking at Keystone for all we know. And he's going to take all that knowledge with him. So we want to make sure we have that succession plans in there so that we're able to continue operating uh, to the um, level that we have come to know here at Seven Springs. But it's a big system for sure. And we definitely have a team that understands it and are continuing to pass that knowledge through the line. Yeah, lay this out for us, Brad. Just how big is that system from a you know snow gun and pumping capacity? And then where do you want to take it? How does snowmaking at Seven Springs evolve? Yeah, it's... All of our terrain here, all 285 skiable acres are covered with snow guns. And so some are pole mounted with HKD snow guns. Some are uh, portable snow guns, both HKD air water guns, as well as a couple of fan guns around the mountain. It's a very, very large system and we can make snow across all 285 acres of it. Not automated yet though, is that right? Yeah, that's the one thing that we're continuously working on and it is not automated for sure. but Automated systems are more efficient and the future of the industry, you know, it's always a priority of ours to continue looking at ways to invest in the mountain and invest in our guest experience. So snowmaking is the number one part that we can do to make that, um, that, that experience here on the mountain as good as it can be. Yeah, I think, you know, lifts, obviously, chairlifts get a lot of attention and, and that's what skiers will notice right away. Snowmaking investments don't really get the headlines. I, I don't, frankly, think skiers do a very good job of, of talking about when they make snowmaking upgrades. This kind of goes back to Vail and helping them understand the preeminence of snowmaking in Pennsylvania. Kind of th- thinking immediate term, or, or I guess a better way to ask the question is, is automation a near-term focus? And what else are you communicating with the, with the corporate folks? Like, hey, this is, we ha- yes, we have however many guns you have, I think you said 1,200. This is what we need to do, even though the, snow, the system is huge, to continue making it better. Yeah, it's right around there. And you know, it's, it's of utmost importance to be able to be as efficient as possible. As the snowmaking systems become automated, we're able to pivot on a dime as quickly as the weather changes. And an automated system reads the snow, the weather station that's nearest to it, whether it's on that snow gun or a neighboring snow gun, and is able to then adjust by itself. Instead, right now we have to go down and have somebody uh, manipulate the valves and, and you know change the click hydrants to a different setting uh, as the weather changes. But we're going to continue investing in automating our snowmaking system as as best we can. It is both short term and long term. So one of the one of the interesting points that you brought up to me when we were at Seven Springs is when you pull up into the parking lot. Anyone who skied Seven Springs know this. Above the hotels and the main base lodges, it's a lot of open slope, right? You don't have a lot of trail skiing. I know there's more on the north side, but but on the main face, you don't. It's a lot of clear cut. It's a very sort of Midwestern style where you, where they just wanted to maximize the terrain they had. Yeah. You, you have some ideas to, to change that long term. So talk about how you would like to evolve the trail network at Seven Springs to maybe ski a little differently and also maybe help with that snowmaking. Because right now, when you have those wide open trail, that's a lot of snow you have to blow. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think, you know, Herman Dupre really wanted to have that wide open bowl type skiing, and he was very successful at it. That's what we have here. That's great for skiing, but not essentially the greatest way of being able to keep snow on the trail that it's meant to stay on. 
and it is a lot of, of area to cover with snowmaking. So we want to plant trees as as many trees as we can to be able to help uh, differentiate some trails a little bit better to control the wind and keep that snow where it's where it's meant to be, as well as to be able to um, help expand some of our green terrain. Our green trails are spread out over the mountain at every corner. And I think by putting in some trees in some key areas, we can di- really differentiate one trail from another a little bit better and also then start working through future plans to make getting to that green train easier and then returning from it as well. Talk about, I'm looking at the trail map right now, some of the trails that you would like to prioritize to to put some tree walls up maybe. Yeah, I think one right at the top of the mountain that we're going to focus on this coming summer is planting trees on Lost Boy. Lost Boy and separating out from the spa Alpine Meadows where our half pipe goes. Uh, we like to make sure that people understand that they're going into a terrain park. And right now there's lots of many different entrances coming into the spot. And I, we think by planting some trees in those select areas and di- differentiating Lost Boy Trail a little bit better, we can make sure that our guests are as safe as possible coming down into a terrain park and be able to cut down the wind as we're making snow in the spot so it's not getting blown all over the hotel. You know, there, there's an interesting point you brought up about where you're getting these trees from. What I mean by that is is there's a larger corporate goal to, as you remove trees, you want to replace them within the portfolio. So, so talk about Seven Springs' role in that and, and how you're trying to tapping into that program. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. And, you know, sustainability is a core value here at Seven Springs and I'm sorry, at Vail Resorts. And we want to embody that here at Seven Springs as well. In our business, we have a special obligation to protect the environment and all of our natural resources. So more trees means less carbon dioxide in the air and so many other benefits that for uh, that really benefit the environment. We, we also, again, think that planting more trees does help enhance the guest flow at the resort. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of trail skiing myself. I just think it makes, it makes a mountain feel bigger. I, I guess, you know, to address the concern of some listeners who may be listening to this and, and thinking, okay, there's already a very busy resort. Why do you want to make the trails narrower? How do you find that balance, right? Because you are essentially taking away some ski terrain if you do this, but I think there's benefits to it too. So, so talk about that dynamic and how you're thinking about that as you look to make some of these trails a little bit narrower and a little more distinguished and you, you still have a very, very busy ski area. Yeah, I want to make sure to convey that message correctly. It's not that we're trying to take away any space or uh, or differentiate the one trail from another that is, you know, for instance, the Stowe Trail. It's it's a wide open trail. We're not looking to put trees down the middle of Stowe Trail and turn it into two different trails. That's not not the case. We think we can strategically place trees and plant them where it makes the most sense to be able to to funnel guests through into an intersection as opposed to coming from one trail to another where we're not really meant to have guest flow going. That's where we have some of the, some of the hot spots around the mountain. And right now we, we mark those off with uh, bamboo and rope and some of the lollipops that we put out around the resort to make it known that those are not areas to be able to cross over from one trail to another. By planting trees in those areas, it helps to beautify the resort a little bit better and cuts down on the manpower it takes to, to mark those areas. So the North Face seems in general just a little bit more trail skiing than the front side. I'm looking at North Face slope here with the two quads going up either side. Is a very wide trail like that an opportunity to put some trees 
in there or, or are you or are you looking really to just do it in areas we're trying to steer people otherwise? Yeah, I think that could be something down the future. We have not talked specifically about the North Face area. We know that that's a very popular area for people to come down, skiers and boarders alike. And we don't want to change the flow of the resort in that manner. We want to make sure that the trails that are differentiated right now stay differentiated. And by planting those trees, we think we can do that. We don't want to, we don't want to address differentiating North Face into three different slopes. It's a nice wide open area that is a great spot to be able to ride. So, you know, one of the advantages of having that generous natural snowfall is you can have some on the map glades, which is something that not a lot of skiers in Pennsylvania have. And, you know, I, I realize you can use them some, some years more than others, but they are there on the map. You told me that you could envision adding some more gladed areas on the map to the mountain. What, where were we looking at and where can we maybe expect to see some of those in the future? Yeah, I think we could, we do have an opportunity in some areas to be able to clear out some other, other gladed areas that are currently, uh, you know, a little overgrown in some areas where we can cut out that undergrowth and open it up a little bit. So I think the big opportunity we have is those gladed areas that we have now expand in a little bit more where they already sit. So we can clear out some underbrush and, and expand on the glades in that way. So what, what areas in particular on the mountain would you be looking at here? If you go over to the turtleneck glades, mm-hmm. that's an area, uh, and turtle claw glades. Those are two real favorite areas. They're great pitch, and the trees are spaced out really well. There's a lot of areas there also that have some undergrowth that we can clear that out and, and create a little bit more of a skiing area in those glades. So that's what I'm talking more so. Okay. How about some of these tree islands that maybe don't have marked glades right now, like off of Village Trail or Boomerang, where you, you have these kind of gentle areas that, but big forested areas? Are there any of those that you're looking at? Uh, possibly in the future, but right now we want to focus on what we currently have and make it the best terrain we can before creating a new space. You know, expanding on the turtle claw glades or turtle neck glades is one one conversation, but I'm not really looking at this point to try to expand a new glade area. Uh, we want to enhance what we already have here before talking about adding anything like that. So you're referring to Lost Boy earlier, and that's a nice, long, kind of novice trail. There's a, a pretty big difference, though, between a novice and beginner, right? And the the beginner terrain, that that never ever, that's something that Seven Springs doesn't quite have enough of right now. And, and you outlined some interesting ideas or, or thinking around adding some more true beginner terrain around the base area. Just talk about that a little bit and, and, and how you're thinking about maybe reorienting some of the lifts and buildings and, and such to change that experience for the true beginner. Yeah. Seven Springs, Hidden Valley, and Laurel, they each have a lot of incredible potential. And we're really excited to consider all the possibilities for each resort. We've got plenty of ideas, and right now we're still in that idea stage. Uh, we're working through brainstorming right now and, and taking all those thoughts that people have and putting them on paper, and that's the stage we're in right now. I don't have any specifics really to add at the moment until we get a little bit further down the path. We're also still gathering data. We want to make sure we make informed decisions on where the guest flow is going. We're you know just over a year into having owned these three resorts and there's still a lot more discovery that needs to be happened. We try to be very cognizant and direct with where we're going to be investing. And that is still at the data gathering stage. 
So Seven Springs is really big. It's bigger than the trail map would suggest once you get on the mountain. Ten lifts servicing this. Some of them are quite old. Uh, you did put in a new quad, a new nice new sky track avalanche in 2021. But just kind of looking around the mountain, Brett, what's your what's your wish list as you look to upgrade and evolve this lift fleet over time? Yeah, wish list would be to continue maximizing our efficiency. And we have some areas that get congested. There's no, no if, ands, and uh, buts about it. You know, here in the beginner bowl, we have three lifts that are all in one area. You have Cortina lift and Polar Bear Express, and it does get busy. There are some opportunities there, and we're always looking at opportunities to increase the guest flow efficiency and how we can enhance that guest experience. And it's going to be exciting to see what changes might be possible in the long term. Uh, but the beginner bowl here area is, is one spot that I think we have a lot of opportunity and we're going to try to see what we can do. Um, still in that discovery stage, though, for sure. Yeah, you have a lot of side-by-side lifts as you go across the mountain. You go over to North Face, you have the Gunner Six Pack and Giant Steps Triple, and then North Face and North Pole Quads all lined up. And then on the front side, you kind of have similar situations. Are there any any places where you could maybe consolidate and modernize here? Yeah, we do have some areas where we have redundant lifts. And while there is some thought there of, you know, if these are redundant, why not take them out and keep it to what, what what's really needed? But I think redundant lifts are a really important piece to the lift infrastructure. If one of the main lifts go down in an area for some reason, for instance, if polar bear goes down, Blitzen chair does go to the same area and all loads on almost the same spot. That's important to have. If we didn't have Blitzen there, one, we wouldn't be able to access the spot and Alpine Meadows, but we also would not have a way for guests to get up if the polar bear lift ever does go down, which uh, we, we try to mitigate as much as we can, but there's always, up, uh, there's always instances where lifts do go down. And so redundant lifts definitely are an important piece of the lift infrastructure. So as I mentioned, Avalanche is really new. We put that in 2021. Um, how has that changed how you use Tyrol and, and, and just thinking long-term about Tyrol, does that, does that lift you think make sense to keep? I think in the short term, it does. We are still in that gathering, uh, the gathering of data stage to be able to understand and make sure that we're making the best decision for uh, what the resort needs at the time. Avalanche is definitely made some changes there. We did move that onload area a little bit further into the hill to be able to allow our guests to be able to access more terrain. It was a little bit up towards the headwall and made it tough to be able to skate across the mountain. Pushing that onload area back definitely helped uh, guests get around the mountain a little bit more efficiently for sure. And we're looking at Tyrol and not quite sure what's going to happen there, but we usually we utilize Tyrol on the weekends during busy days and we're going to continue to do so. So you made this point to me, you have some really good green trails, uh, skier, skiers right, Village Trail, Boomerang Trail, off of the Avalanche Lift. And you have some really good green trails off the Cortina, Polar Bear Express Lifts. Once you're over on Avalanche, though, it's hard to get over to the green trails, the Fawn Trail and Phillips Run and, and Lost Boy and Deer Pass. So it looks, when you come up top Avalanche, as though you could just ski across, but you actually don't have that right away. So just to talk about the sort of property realities there because i think most skiers are probably thinking the same as me when they come off the top of avalanche well i can just ski across so what, what are you dealing with at the top of the mountain and what is the challenge there and what is your thinking around how to maybe fix that long term yeah it does look like you could skate across for sure from the top of avalanche over to fawn however 
we don't own some of that land there. When when Vail purchased the resort from the nutting company, uh, they retained some of the, the, the real estate in the area. And one area there is right off the, the top of the mountain at the Tyrol and Avalanche onload areas. So we're, we're working through that challenge. And that doesn't mean nothing in the future would never happen there. You know, we, we have the opportunity to be able to plant trees in areas to make, make it so that we do have a, a right away for some area, for some of the beginner skiers to skate back over and make it a little bit easier and safer. Uh, those are all parts of that, of the brainstorming that we're working through right now and putting everything on paper. So no idea is a bad idea at this point. So if you can't connect folks from Avalanche to the green terrain, skiers left across the top, could you do it across the bottom? Maybe a, a little lift up from the bottom of Avalanche back up to the main base. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. And could could something be installed there to be able to get um, guests back up from the Avalanche parking lot or the Avalanche base uh, base area? Absolutely. That's part of a broader conversation. And that would actually incre- include a lot more infrastructure changes throughout the beginner bowl here too. Uh, but those have all been thrown on the table. All right, let's move over to Hidden Valley here, Brett. Talk about Hidden Valley just in a general way first. I, I know you laid out the distinct characters of the resorts earlier, and they are very different places. Talk about how, how Hidden Valley complements Seven Springs and how they kind of work as a unit. Because it, it's it's interesting here because most Vail resorts have a general manager for each mountain, right? But Vail decided to put these three together under one general manager, which is you. So how do these three very different ski areas that are near each other, but still very different work together as a, as a unit and complement one another? Yeah, we think we have an opportunity here to go off the beaten path a little bit. And we see this as a great location to be able to grow leaders. And instead of putting a senior leadership team at all three mountains, one at each mountain, we think it's, it's a better opportunity to grow more talent and grow more leadership by uh, allowing those leaders to own a little bit more of what they're doing there. So we do have one senior leadership team that encompasses all three resorts, same with the resort leadership team and department managers. Uh, that's the way that we're headed right now. And I'm happy to say it's been going very well. The leadership teams here have been diving into it full bore and have been very much uh, impressing me for sure. Uh, the three resorts do complement each other very well. And Hidden Valley, for instance, Hidden Valley is the yin to Seven Springs, Seven Springs Yang. It's a favorite among families. Both are within 20 minutes of each other. So it's really easy to visit both in one trip and get the full experience. If you want to get out of the hustle and bustle of Seven Springs, go to Hidden Valley. It's 20 minutes. You can make that trip four times a day if you wanted to. That's pretty cool. And not anywhere else in PA do you get to uh, experience that. All right, let's, let's talk about Hidden Valley. And it's smaller than Seven Springs, but your lift fleet there is it's a little bit aged. How would you like to evolve the lift fleet at Hidden Valley? You know, all of our lift upgrades and additions are really intentional as, as we always continue to be looking at the guest experience and, and the connectivity overall across the mountain. There's lots of factors that go into what we'll upgrade there, and we'll be excited to consider the long-term possibilities and announce when we have those changes and upgrades, those decisions made. We're still not there yet, and I think it, it's premature to be able to uh, to sit here right now and say we have it figured out because we don't. We don't, and I don't want to be anything less than intentional on making sure that we spend money in the right way. So 
we're still gathering the data there as well. And hopefully we'll, we'll have something to announce in the coming season, two seasons. But uh, right now we're still gathering everything. If you dig back into the archives and you go back to around the mid-2000s, the trail maps at Hidden Valley show this potential expansion. Uh, skiers right on the far edge of the resort. Is that expansion still possible? And I guess there's a few parts to that. You know, A, do you own the land if you do want to expand? And B, is there any talks of doing that? You know, when you shared that that website with me on those trail maps, I had not known of that that website, which is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I spent a lot of time diving into some of the old <laughs> trail maps from the areas of, of all the resorts in PA and went down quite a rabbit hole. Uh, it was really exciting. Uh, but, you know, that, that terrain expansion, from what I understand, was uh, the previous owner to, uh, to Hidden Valley was the Park family. And that terrain expansion was really to try to combat and compete with Seven Springs to continue mm-hmm. growing that area to compete. And right now, we're not in an area where we're trying to have those areas compete. We think they complement each other really well, as is at the moment. That's not to say down 10, 20 years in the future, we would never try to do that. But right now we want to try to maximize the the lifts, the lifts and the trails that we currently have before talking about future expansion. Do you own that land though? Like what, what, what do you actually own at Hidden Valley? And I guess it's Seven Springs as well. Is, is there more expansion opportunities there for, from a trail footprint point of view? Yeah, at Seven Springs, we don't own much more than the footprint of the ski resort. It's very limited. At Hidden Valley, we do own that land and um, and are still trying to see what might be possible out there. And what kind of terrain is it? Because Hidden Valley is a, is a gentler mountain and families seem to really love it. Is it pretty consistent with the pitch that we see otherwise in Hidden Valley over there? Yeah, I've not been over there myself, but my understanding is it's a little bit more of aggressive terrain that uh, that really could be a nice addition but we would need to spend a little bit of money there to discover what all that terrain is and what the costs would end up being. So really interesting. So we just had this conversation about seven Springs and, and the fact that the system is huge, but not automated uh, hidden Valley. The system is automated. So, so you kind of really know what the benefits are. So talk about that system at hidden Valley and how working with that system maybe informs how you'll approach the snowmaking evolution at seven Springs. Yeah, the, the snowmaking system at Hidden Valley is a really state-of-the-art system. It is pretty cool. You can actually run that whole mountain from the control room on one monitor and understanding where the weather stations are and then have the, the, the snow guns adjust themselves. That's a pretty cool opportunity. And having that here within these these mountains and having experience with it makes it easier to understand the benefits of, of going fully automated. There's infrastructure changes that would need to happen here at Seven Springs in order to make that happen. And that's not something that we take lightly. Uh, there's a lot of money that would need to go in to upgrade the infrastructure with electric uh, electricity and, and power generation. But that is all part of a conversation. We know that automation is the future of what snowmaking is. It's not getting cheaper to make snow. It's only going to get more expensive. And we need to do everything we can to make sure that we can do it as efficiently as possible. It's definitely the future. All right, let's shift over to Laurel here. Laurel, to me personally, is the most interesting of the three. I think just because of of what it is and and the sort of uh, terrain it has and and the sort of demographic that it serves. So, just tell us first here for listeners who may not be familiar uh, a, a little bit of the history of Laurel Mountain and and how it came back. 
Laurel Mountain's story goes back decades. Originally, the ski area was owned by the Mellon family who, who gifted it to the state of Pennsylvania back in the 60s, and they gifted it to be used for outdoor recreation. Laurel operated sporadically before closing in 2004 or 2005. Uh, a few years later, the Nutting Company came to an agreement with the DCNR, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, to reopen and operate Laurel Mountain under a concessionaire agreement, which ultimately reopened the resort in 2016. So, as you said earlier, it's very much a locals area and you can feel that just talk about the character of this ski area a little bit and how it is different from the other two areas you operate. It is by far a a skier and a snowboarder's dream. If you're a diehard rider, you are going to love lower mountain. The terrain is uh, what it's renowned for. Lower wildcat is the steepest terrain in Pennsylvania. I believe it's a 20, I'm sorry, a 70% grade which is pretty crazy when you think about it. It keeps, it's, it's tough to keep snow on it sometimes, but we have a winch cat there that we're able to push things back up the mountain and keep it open. And happy to say that we were able to open lower wildcat this past weekend and nice. everyone loved it. It was a tremendous accomplishment to get that area, Laurel Mountain opened, reopened in 2016. And we're hoping to continue that history for as long as we can. There's sort of this uh, narrative out there that Vail Resorts corporatizes its mountains and pushes the the character out of them. Um, I don't agree with that. It's just, it's out there and it's, and it's a pretty persistent narrative. If you look at some of the areas that Vail owns, Wildcat in New Hampshire, Crested Butte, Kirkwood, it does have these sort of very funky, different kind of ski areas that are very different from say Beaver Creek or North Star. So talk about, how Vale's approaching Laurel, which is the most uncorporate thing you can imagine when you pulled up. You didn't know Vale Resorts owned it. You would never think so, right? So so how is Vale approaching that sort of individual identity of Laurel Mountain? And how is the company respecting that and looking to preserve it as it looks into how it's going to evolve Laurel? I agree with you 100%. I think that's an unfair representation of what Vail Resorts really wants to do, and uh, you know we're gonna we try as hard as we can to counteract that that conversation, but it's it's definitely out there, and we talk the talk and we walk the walk, and if you can take anything away from all of the other acquisitions that have happened within Vail Resorts over the last several years, or all of them for that matter, we are really committed to having each resort keep and own its individual character, and. We've seen that through the Snowtime Resorts. If you go to Roundtop, Roundtop is almost as the least corporate of a feel as you can get, similar to what Laurel is. And it still has that feel, and it's going to continue to have that feel. We love what Laurel Mountain is, and we're going to continue to own that. It is not an area where we want to try to grow a hotel and uh, put in a bunch of restaurants and add a lot of other amenities. We want Laurel to be known for what it is uh, and and have it be be just that own the skiing and snowboarding is great terrain and no frills. And that's, that's what it is. That's what people love about it. And one of the reasons why the locals were able to push to get Laurel mountain reopened. You know, one, one frill that I, I think uh, locals wouldn't mind is, is maybe a little more snowmaking. Uh, you are very challenged there it is, especially when you compare it to your other two ski areas. So, what does the snowmaking system look like at Laurel and what is the opportunity there? And, and I guess what are more important questions, what are your intentions? 
Yeah, it's currently, it's a pretty small system. And I think enhancing laurel snowmaking is critical at the same time. There's great terrain there that ultimately relies on natural snowfall or it has limited snowmaking. And in order to upgrade the system, we need to upgrade the electrical infrastructure a little bit more Mm -hmm. and identify additional water resources. So we're going to continue working with the state to identify where we may have additional water. And we're already talking through operational updates on the electrical infrastructure to be able to put in some fan guns and increase some firepower there this all season. I mean, it's my opinion that every scary in Pennsylvania needs 100% snowmaking. Is that the goal? Um, Down the road, ultimately, yes. I think we want to uh, understand a little bit more about the the terrain there and what it will take to do 100% snowmaking altogether. That will, will ultimately end up being a little bit more of an expensive proposition. But if the, the numbers make sense, for sure, we'll go down that road. So Laurel is in this really spectacular setting, and you go down to the bottom of the lift. As you said, it's an upside-down scaria. I mean, it's just just huge wilderness. So you're kind of surrounded by this bowl, and it all looks skiable. And I believe that the state owns all of that. So talk about that expansion potential and what it would take to make that happen. Yeah, I think the, the state does loan all, own all the land and ponds. And we share in that business together. And so any conversation on trying to expand that definitely is going to be a conversation with the state and the DCNR. Right now, we're still not at that level. We're not at the level of trying to, to grow the resort. We want to really enhance what's already there and, and do what we do well before trying to grow beyond that footprint at the moment. It does seem like an underutilized ski area as this Epic Pass sort of gels and and folks realize what they have there. Are you trying to push Laurel a little bit more and, and say, hey, you know, yeah, Seven Springs is, is super busy on a Saturday, but guess what? We have this other ski area that's smaller, but you're probably not going to have as much of a line. Are you at that point where you're trying to promote it as this complementary piece of the Seven Springs Laurel Hidden Valley ecosystem, or, or are you just kind of letting it be for now? No, we're pushing that as much as we can. Laurel is a hidden gem and we don't want it to be hidden anymore. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure people know that it's there and that it is a a great mountain to go visit. And you can do so without any extra cost to you, no no extra pass. And we're already starting to see some growth in the the visits there for sure. And now that Lower Wildcat's open, it's going to grow that visitation even better. And that's one of the things we want to do in the off season is understand that Lower Wildcat is a big draw and we need to try to do everything we can to open it earlier in the season. And so that's what we're going to try to do in this off season, make that happen. Have you seen numbers up at Laurel this year? Has the snow situation sort of muted any, any progress you may have made there? Yeah, the, the snow situation has been muting that at the moment, but the, the visitation numbers have been on point with where they have been and and actually even up a little bit. So we're seeing some growth midweek for sure. So Laurel is, uh, you know, we were talking about old trail maps earlier. And as you browse through Laurels, and for anyone listening, I'll include links to these maps and probably some of the maps themselves in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But it, it once had up to six lifts, a combination of chairlifts and surface lifts. Now it has, when the Nutting family reopened it, they put in a brand new sky track. It's a great lift. It's a quad from base to summit. There's also a handle toe that I didn't realize was there because it's not on the trail map. <laughs> so, so I guess the first question is, um, why isn't that handle toe on the trail map? <laughs> like, have you used it yet? And then thinking long-term, what, what, what is the potential to grow out that lift system? Or is it just going to be a two-lift mountain? 
Yeah, so the, the handle toe not being included on the trail map was purely a design oversight. Okay. Um, I, I kick myself in the rear end every time I see it because it's a key piece of the infrastructure there for sure. Mm-hmm. There's no intent on removing the handle toe. And actually this summer, we're going to be doing some earthwork there to be able to make it so that we can utilize the, the handle toe right off the bat at the beginning of the season. Currently, it takes about five to eight feet of snow to be able to utilize that because of the way the ground is there. That's a lot. So we're going to work to make sure that we can get that open as early as we can next year. And you you did mention that infrastructure and how many different lift configurations and possibilities there were over the years. And definitely Laurel has had many renditions over the long history and each of the operators had plans and intentions. And right now, our intention is to stay put on where we are and enhance what's already there with that infrastructure and then go into that conversation about what we might be able to do in the future. But right now we're trying to utilize what we have to the best ability we can. So all these changes we've been talking about in order to do any of these, you have to work with, as you mentioned, the state DNR. And I think a lot of folks don't realize Vail doesn't own this ski area. It's an operator and it has a similar situation in Mount Sunapee up in New Hampshire. Talk about that relationship with the state DNR Brett, and how you work together to run this ski area. Yeah, we work very closely with the DCNR, and I've got a great relationship with the um, with the state park manager there and his team, and looking forward to continuing to grow that relationship. We have conversations and are going to continue to have conversations. At the end of the day, we're we're partners in this enterprise, and we want to make sure that both are successful in the long run. It was interesting, uh, another point on just corporate ownership and, and how you might do things differently locally. You did launch a new trail map for Seven Springs this year, and I'm a big trail map guy, obviously. <laughs> and it's clear that you're using a different vendor than, say, Vail Mountain or in, in different designers. So uh, I, I believe you want to update the trail maps to the other ski areas as well. So so just talk about how you handle trail maps as as this piece of, of Vail Resorts and, and whether there's any corporate component to that. Um, and then and then why you updated Seven Springs map and, and, and how you want to handle the other two mountains. Yeah, there is a corporate piece to owning the trail maps and upgrading, updating those as needed. And that has been something that I'm not not part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm glad I'm not because there's so much other operational pieces that need to be focused on. And that's why we have a, a marketing era, line of business that really owns that. We will continue to update the trail maps as as needed. Uh, I don't know who the vendor is, but I can tell you they did a really nice job with updating the Seven Springs map this year. Mm-hmm. All right, Brad, let's wrap up today with a talk about the Epic Pass. Though Vale owned Seven Springs last season, the three mountains were not on the Epic Pass. So now that we're a couple months in, how has that transition gone to putting these three mountains on the Epic Pass and welcoming that demographic in? The transition's gone very well. Uh, We've heard from so many guests that are thrilled to have Seven Springs, Hidden Valley, and Laurel Mountain on the Epic Pass. Adding three new great resorts to the Epic Pass has given our pass holders so much more value and opportunity. And it came through a little bit cheaper than what the Laurel Highlands Pass was previously. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't thank the team enough here at Seven Springs and Hidden Valley and Laurel Mountain for the level of buy-in and the determination and how proud everybody is out here for these resorts. Everybody loves these mountains and they've worked incredibly hard to launch us into that first season here as Epic Pass. And I can't thank them enough as, as well as Vail Resorts. You know, the company has been able to own what they do out here and we're beneficiaries of it. It's been fantastic. 
you, know, you said something really interesting to me when I was out there in that when Vale purchased Peak, Seven Springs kind of lost a lot of that Ohio demographic, right? Because you have all the Cleveland area resorts and the Columbus area resort in Mad River that Vale suddenly owned. And then they were like, okay, well, we can go to Whitetail and Round Top. And so they just started bypassing Seven Springs. And you said those Ohio license plates are, are, are back in the parking lots this year. So Seven Springs, uh-huh. like, just talk about that ecosystem and, and how that's helped fill in the gap and, and where Seven Springs fits within Vale's portfolio as a whole. Yeah, I think as I go back to what I mentioned earlier about Pennsylvania having 24 different ski areas, uh, you throw Ohio in there. I'm not quite sure how many are in Ohio, but we have uh, we have four that are now part of the Epic Pass. Mm-hmm. And within four hours, that's a pretty cool opportunity. And we are right along that path. If you are in central Pennsylvania or even right on the border of Ohio and Pennsylvania, you've got almost 30 resorts that you can get to on one pass. That is one cool piece and quite the value. And we're really proud to be able to offer that. And we are anecdotally seeing some more Ohio license plates and Virginia and Maryland. We are excited to welcome those guests to come back. Seven Springs is really interesting to me because most of these little resorts that they have in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, et cetera, they're feeders, right? But but Seven Springs is also a destination. So just kind of talk about that stature as a, a destination, but also I'm sure that your pass holders are pretty fired up that their pass now gets them access to Vail and Whistler and Lake Tahoe resorts. Oh, definitely. We've already been seeing uh, and hearing from guests that are excited to be able to go out West and up North. That's a big piece of it. And people were already partaking and that is a huge piece. You know, most notably, we're also seeing growth here midweek because of how close in proximity we are, it's not a full day trip to come out and visit us from from central Pennsylvania or central Ohio. You can come out here, ski for the day, and then go back all in one day. That's pretty cool. All right, Brett, last question for you here today. Vail is limiting lift ticket sales at all of its mountains every day of this season. Have you had any sellouts yet at any of the three mountains? Yeah. Thanks for that question. And we are limiting lift tickets every day across every resort this season. That's in an effort to preserve the guest experience at our resorts. Passes, including Epic Day passes and pass holder benefit tickets, the buddy passes and, and such, those aren't limited. Uh, we're proud to be a trio of those popular resorts here in Pennsylvania. And we have already had a few days uh, that we sell, we've sold out. And some come very close to doing so both at Seven Springs and Hidden Valley. So we continue to strongly encourage our guests to plan ahead, buy your ticket online and in advance so you don't miss out on exploring the new, these new resorts or hitting some of your favorite slopes. So the, the Epic Pass hasn't, you haven't had any overwhelming days. I mean, I know you can forecast it to some extent, but given your proximity to Pittsburgh and the popularity of these mountains, I mean, were you caught off guard at all on Christmas week or, or MLK or any other time by larger than you expected crowds or, or have you been able to sort of forecast that? Yeah, we've been able to forecast it for the most part. You know, whenever there is some natural snow that comes into the forecast and snow is in the backyards of all of our guests, people start thinking about skiing and snowboarding. And that does make it more popular to come out to our ski areas. And we've been able to manage through it. Some days are more challenging than than others, but we're going to continue to do the best that we can. And we think we have a pretty good handle on it. All right, Brett. Well, I will, with that, I'll give you your day back. I ate up your whole afternoon here. Thank you very much. I am very interested to follow this and and see how these resorts will continue to evolve. 
Undervale Resorts and under your leadership. And I wish you the best of luck for the rest of the season. And hopefully you get some snow. Yeah, thank you very much. And when we do get some more snow, hopefully you come out here and enjoy it with us again. That's Brett Cook, Vice President and General Manager of Seven Springs, Hidden Valley, and Laurel Mountain, Pennsylvania. Brett, awesome job. The more I ski PA, the more I love it, and I am going to have to get back out there soon. Thank you all for listening. Back rolling with the pod here. Whitefish is coming. It is already recorded. Just have to work through some audio issues, and that one will be in your inbox. But I figured I would blast out a few of the easier ones first. We have a whole bunch more on the way after Whitefish, including conversations with the leaders of Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Wisconsin, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, and China Peak. And I am booking more conversations all the time. Remember, the best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers to receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.